Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for your patience. What you don't know is that we now are video linked to two other auditoriums for the overfill and the extra capacity. So thank you for your patience for those of you who came early on. Welcome to the public speaker series. They are very well attended at uh, London School of Economics. I'm Dr. Linda Hickman. I teach in the Department of Management, and the, the department is the sponsor for the event this evening. And we're very pleased this evening uh, to host the author and entrepreneur, Eric Rees. And within our own department, we have considerable interest in entrepreneurial studies, and we have across the campus a number of uh, societies and groups that are working on entrepreneurship. We have the career service with their master class series and there is a LSE student entrepreneur society and I have to mention that we have a newly formed LSE entrepreneurial alumni group who are initiating their first event this evening after Eric's speech at the George. So if you're alumni and interested in entrepreneurship, the George can now um, be your place to meet. And I'm sure Eric is very welcome to join them for a pint afterwards. We're pleased very much to have Eric here. And the book that he's written has already caused some controversy. We sometimes say that our public speakers uh, are contentious. And that's, those are more likely to be the political speakers. However, Eric already has some of his people uh, on the lookout for some of the people that don't agree with him. So I'd like to talk a little bit about his Lean Startup book. It's been a bestseller on the New York Times list, and it's one that is actually starting a whole movement uh, of the Lean Startup methodology. He's going to be speaking for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then it will be followed by questions and answers. Afterwards, you will be able to go into the foyer for book signing if you would like to. There will be books that will be on sale at that time. Now, when we look at Eric's career, he's an award-winning careerist. And he started as a software developer, as so many people do of his age and generation and in Silicon Valley, and became a product development manager, followed by becoming an entrepreneur and, very importantly, co-founder and CTO of IMVU, very successful uh, software company, which some of you might be quite familiar with, with and their avatars. Currently, he's on the board of a number of startups and entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School, uh, as well as a publicist and a public speaker. Now, Eric has become contentious because he challenges some of the views about entrepreneurship. It's very popular to take the great man story and say that they were so brilliant and they were geniuses and it would be very hard for other people to do the same thing. And although they give inspiring stories, they don't really let you know how they did it or help you to be an entrepreneur yourself. Eric is a reflective practitioner. And as one, he has gathered some very deep insights, very practical, very realistic, and one so that say, in fact, it's not 
an art, but there can be some science, there can be a method, and we can be successful. So although some people would believe that to say entrepreneurial management is an oxymoron, in fact, Eric will tell us why it's not. Hello, testing, testing. Okay, you can hear me. Wow, there's so many of you here, and uh, it's really, really a great honor. And thank you, I guess, to the brave souls who are, are being telecast to another auditorium. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. So thank you all very much. It's really an honor to be here. I don't know a lot about the London School of Economics, but it sounds very prestigious. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Actually, all I, all I knew about it before coming here today was it is the... Uh, it is the alma mater of the fictional President Bartlett from the West Wing. But that's <laughs> prestigious indeed to me, so I was, I was pretty excited. So thank you. This is, uh, this is really a very warm welcome. Uh, I do want to cover some very important ground rules uh, for our time together this evening. The first is that uh, I do not want your undivided attention. So if anyone made the mistake of turning off their mobile phone or laptop, if you undo that and take it back out, I'm, that's not a joke. Please, out of your pocket, I'll do the same. So you just pull it out on hold it in your hand and if you turn it back on I'd appreciate it I don't feel like it's right for anyone to be disconnected from the internet on my account <laughs> I don't know if that even really counts as living so please uh, don't do that and in fact I encourage you to tweet uh, amongst yourselves as much as you like all I ask is that you use the lean startup hashtag so that you can uh, join the worldwide conversation that's happening on these ideas uh, basically every hour a minute of every day uh, and I don't know uh, exactly which other countries are Online with, I don't really quite get the time zone thing, but I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, so please, please do do that. It's really, uh, entrepreneurship is a hot topic. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, people are really excited about it. Public policymakers say it's the key to our future prosperity. And I was, I was actually just in Dublin before this, and my cab driver was telling me uh, that he knew that the government there was very keen for, for the Irish to become more entrepreneurial, and that was solve their economic problems. And I thought if the, even the cab driver is aware of this, you know, it's really, it's got to epic proportions, and we make movies about the great entrepreneurs, and we read them about them in magazines. It's very exciting. Uh, and so I thought I would share a few ideas uh, from this new book, uh, and here they are. Uh, these are, you know, five principles from the book. That entrepreneurs are everywhere, that entrepreneurship is management, as you've just heard. That the unit of progress of entrepreneurship is this thing we call validated learning. That we can steer a startup using a thing we call the build, measure, learn feedback loop. And last, we can hold entrepreneurs accountable using a system called innovation accounting. Uh, and so you'll immediately see that this is at odds with the kind of very cool and exciting image of entrepreneurship, because tonight we're going to talk about uh, management and accounting, maybe the two most boring topics known to man. And so I'm not going to apologize, because I actually think that entrepreneurship is in desperate need of becoming more boring and less cool. Because those of you who are entrepreneurs, who's actually in a startup right now? Just a quick show of hands. OK, quite a few of you. you then I don't have to tell you. The, the results of entrepreneurship are exciting. Changing the world, that is really phenomenal. The practice of entrepreneurship is anything but exciting. It's actually excruciatingly difficult, most of the time very embarrassing and quite often boring. For example, most of the time that is spent in a startup's life is spent in product prioritization meetings. Who's been in a product prioritization meeting recently? Yeah. Who feels like it would be a good subject for a movie or a magazine profile? <laughs> Nobody. And so if you watch the movies about entrepreneurship, 
They always have act one, where we come up with a great idea and find ourselves in the right place at the right time. We go to act two, what we call the photo montage, which lasts about one minute, has no dialogue. It just shows us shaking a few hands or in the social network, you know, they're writing on windows with those cool whiteboard markers. That's what it looks like, of course. And then we go right away to act three, where we're on the cover of magazines and we decide who sues who, et cetera. That's the really exciting parts in act one and act three, and yet, all of the important decisions that affect the outcome of startups happen during the photo montage. They're just too boring to make it into the movie. So if we're going to get better at entrepreneurship, we have to get good at the boring stuff. And that's what we're going to talk about. If anyone's disappointed, uh, you have my apologies in advance. So here we go. Entrepreneurs are everywhere. This probably will be obvious to this audience. But I think it's very important, if we're going to talk about entrepreneurship, that we be rigorous in doing so. And we start with a rigorous definition of what is a startup. Because I don't think a startup is defined by the garage and the ramen noodles. Rather, I think it is defined as a human institution designed to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty. So really, it has nothing to do with whether you're in the garage or not, nothing to do with what kind of food you eat or what kind of benefits you have, what kind of office you go into. It is fundamentally about trying to figure out how do we build a sustainable business when we frankly have no idea. Does that sound familiar to the entrepreneurs in the room? Yeah, and it's very different than the work that our colleagues in general management face every day. And those of us who either have or have had in the past a regular job where you, know, you can figure out what needs doing and then do it, will recognize that this way of working is really quite different because this context is really different. And so we actually have colleagues who are entrepreneurs in gigantic companies, in governments, in nonprofits, in all kinds of situations that don't fit the image we see in the movies. And all of that is a really fancy way of saying that a startup is an experiment. But not, as in the past, an experiment in can something be built, but rather an experiment that asks, should it be built? Can we build a sustainable organization around this a series of products and services? And Basically, to you know, be very direct about it, we're not doing it very well right now as a civilization. In fact, I would go so far as to say that we are busy wasting people's time on an industrial scale. And I brought a demonstration. We are used to the idea that most startups fail. Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen this diagram before. This was a very popular diagram where I'm from in San Francisco, uh, circa 2006. Who remembers Web 2.0? Remember that? That was cool in antiquity. 2006, more than six years ago now, so you know, quite, quite old as fads go, there was a time when it seemed this set of companies would really radically transform the way we all communicate and buy things online. Really, the whole fabric of society, if you believe the hype, was going to be transformed. And so a graphic designer was so inspired by this wave of innovation that they put together this flag, a declaration of independence for all of these incredible companies that would change the world. And then in 2009, so if you're keeping track, three years later, a different graphic designer was feeling a slightly different set of emotions when they put together this diagram. <laughs> I don't know uh, what you can see, those of you in the back, and certainly on the telecast may not be able to see, uh, most of this chart is covered in blood red X's for the companies that are dearly departed, no longer with us. And you can see already in three years we've lost uh, so much of this innovation. But to me, the irony, the really bitter irony of this, this chart is how many companies are marked with green circles. Those are those marked as success stories of Web 2.0, which in this case, according to the graphic designer, are those companies which have been bought by a larger company. And I don't really think those necessarily count as a success. I mean, I know some people made some money, but I think we all know, I, I assume, that when a company exits, 
Often, the product also exits along with the founders and investors. Uh, that is, the big company manages to drive it right into the ground. And then for the companies that are unmarked, the ones that were still alive at the time this chart was made, how many of them, although they are alive, are eking out a bare existence in what we call the land of the living dead? Too many. So my real question is, as for us as an industry, how many of these companies actually succeeded in living up to the raw amount of time, talent, determination, energy, passion, and money that was poured into them by their founders, investors, and employees? That is, for how many of these companies is the world a better place that we spend our energy on this rather than anything else? And I think the answer is really a pathetically small number. And I like Web 2.0 as an example because no one can say to themselves, gosh, pick a company on this chart and say, gosh, I wonder, is it possible to build that product? Can it be done? My idea is for a social network for dogs. Can it be done? See, we live at a time when we can build anything that we can imagine, which is kind of a strange place to be. It means that the, the caliber of our imaginations will determine the quality of our future financial success as a civilization, which is both exciting and I hope you feel a little bit terrifying as you start to think about whose imaginations we all depend on. Anyway, I should disclose at this point that most of my companies that I've ever built in my career count as red X's rather than anything else. They've, they're failures. And I know you're not supposed to admit that kind of thing when you're up in front of an audience being like, hey, everybody, I'm a big failure. And if you follow me, you too can be a big failure. But anyone, anyone who is telling you the truth about entrepreneurship uh, is going to be talking about failure. Anyone else is trying to sell you something. Uh, and it has to be somebody's fault obviously, and it can't be my fault. I mean, that would be really defeat the purpose. Uh, and so I'd like to pin the blame on somebody else, which brings us to our next concept, that entrepreneurship is management. But it's not the management that uh, we tend to teach our MBAs and we think about in our general management practices. Instead, it's management as defined by this guy whose fault all this failure is, in my humble opinion. Uh, he, he's preferably, you know, when you want to blame somebody, it's nice to have somebody who's dead. Uh, because then they can't argue. So this is Fred Taylor, the father of something that he called scientific management, but we call management. The problem with understanding Fred Taylor is that he invented things that we consider so obvious, we can't imagine that they had to be invented in the first place, like the idea that work should be done as efficiently as possible. I want you to imagine a homework assignment writing a polemic in favor of the idea that work should be done efficiently and ask yourself, who's on the other side of the polemic? What arguments do you even concoct? I mean, can you imagine having to write such a thing? And yet that is what Fred Taylor did. If you read the principles of scientific management, you will read a very well-written, very well-argued manifesto in favor of things that you say, it's like, who on earth? One of, his, one of my favorites is the idea he called the task plus bonus system. We call it tasks. Right? So a manager could figure out, uh, take a big project, break it down into a series of parts called tasks, farm those tasks out to functional specialists in functional departments, and then here's the best part. See if you can wrap your mind around this. If the person in the department finds a better way to do the task than they did it in the past, they should be paid a bonus and not penalized. Again, who's on the other side of this polemic? Well, in the 19th century, there was a belief, I kid you not, that if somebody does a better job than they did before, that tells you one thing about them, namely that they're a person of low moral character. Why? They could have been doing it the better way this whole time, but they were slacking <laughs> off. Now think about their coworkers. What do we know about all of them who are still doing it the old way? The whole lot of them are of low moral character and they should all be punished. So imagine that collective punishment for productivity improvement. So there was a management philosophy. Now ask yourself the way we ma manage our modern knowledge workers, is it really so different 
than that. But that's uh, beyond the point today. The management system that Fred Taylor invented, uh, we are the recipients of. So we owe the general managers who are his intellectual heirs a tremendous debt of gratitude. Did anybody bring an heirloom antique with them today, by chance? Okay, no, that means that every object in this room, including the room itself, was manufactured using the principles of general management that Fred Taylor and his disciples worked out. So we owe those general managers of the world a tremendous debt of gratitude. Let's just pause for a moment and say thank you. None of us would be alive or clothed if it wasn't for them. The problem is, if we told Fred Taylor that our problem is not can it be built, but should it be built, he would look at us very strange. Because in his time, the problem that management was dedicated to solving was very clear. There wasn't enough stuff, and we needed to make a lot more of it. And yet we are drowning in stuff. We have more manufacturing capability, more capability to build anything that we can imagine, than we know what to do with. And so, as I said before, the question of our time is not can it be built, but should it be built? And therefore, the principles that Fred Taylor worked out, the principles of general management, are ill-suited to our time. What we need is a new discipline of management, I call it entrepreneurial management, that is not better than general management, is by no means a replacement for general management, is simply a peer discipline to general management. And it specifically is geared to that context of extreme uncertainty in which startups thrive. With me? Okay, and the most important uh, tool in the toolkit of general management is something uh, which is called the pivot. Uh, this has become a bit of an overused uh, jargon. Anyone sick and tired of hearing about pivoting already? I apologize. In Silicon Valley, believe me, everyone's hand is up. And they're like, please, enough with the pivots already. I kid you not, this appeared, no joke, in the New Yorker magazine last year. It says, if you can't read it, I'm not leaving you, I'm pivoting to another man. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got a bit out of control, I apologize. But it is a foundational concept. We really have to get to, if we're, you know, we're going to get to the truth of entrepreneurship, we've got to get good at understanding pivoting. Uh, the reason is that if you can get the real stories of uh, startups, how they actually began. Not, unfortunately, the garbage you read in the press, the myths that we make movies out of, but the true stories of what actually happened, you will discover a funny thing. The good entrepreneurs do not have better ideas than the bad entrepreneurs. They're actually equally ridiculous. It's just that the good entrepreneurs have this very unusual ability, which is that when they encounter difficulty, they don't give up and go home, but neither do they persevere the plane straight into the ground through stubbornness. They, they're able to take what they have learned and keep one foot rooted in that while changing something else about the business at a time. A pivot is a change in strategy without a change in vision. And the premise of the Lean Startup as a methodology is as follows. The way to think about startup runway is not how much time do we have left before we go out of business. It is rather how many more opportunities to pivot do we have left. And we can extend runway by raising more money or by figuring out how to get to the moment of pivoting sooner. If we can decrease that cycle time even a little bit, we have magically expanded runway without having raised a single more dollar. That's why lean startups are more capital efficient. Which brings us really to the core idea of validated learning. We have to change what it means to make progress as an entrepreneur. Otherwise, we're going to keep having this experience that I've had far too many times in my career. I call it achieving failure. It's when you build a brilliant business plan and then you successfully execute it and then you go out of business. This actually seems to be basically the core pattern of most of the startups. If you look at the X's on that chart I showed you before, you will see this over and over and over again. It's very painful. And the problem is that if we are fundamentally building something that nobody wants, why are we so proud of having done it on time and on budget? Right? Yet, when we go to startup board meetings, what's being discussed? It's always product and business milestones. How do they compare to the plan? 
But if you think about it, that is really general management way of thinking. That's Fred Taylorism run amok, that fundamentally our job is to forecast the future. And then if you beat the forecast, you get promoted, else you get fired. And if you think about that, forecasting and planning really only makes sense if we have a long and stable operating history from which to make an accurate forecast, right? And so who feels like the world is getting more and more stable every day? Right, so more and more of our work is being moved out of the domain of general management, of stability and forecasting, and into the domain of entrepreneurial management, of pivoting, confusion, and hopefully experimentation. Now, the word lean comes from these gentlemen who invented something that we now call lean manufacturing that began in Japan with a, with a Toyota production system. And the key insight of lean was that if we look at our uh, enterprise through the eyes of the customer, we can try to figure out which activities we do are value creating and which ones are waste, and we can eliminate the waste. Deming is famous for having said the customer is the most important part of the production line. but. What do we do if we don't yet know who the customer is? Then through whose eyes do we evaluate our own activity? See, I had to learn this the hard way at my last company, which is called InView. You heard before, we make a 3D avatar product. And we spent about six months building the first version of InView based on a really clever strategy that involved interoperating with all of the existing instant messaging networks. This is 2004. Instant messaging was the hot new social technology. We wanted to bring 3D avatars to instant messaging. So obviously, the way to do that is not to build a new instant messaging network, but rather to interoperate with the existing networks, harness their network effects for viral growth. I'm in a business school, so I can say this kind of thing, right? Create, you know, avoiding the really high switching costs that instant messaging has, therefore getting around the barrier to entry problem. And usually when I'm talking to business students, that's the part where they're nodding their head, like that sounds pretty good. So we spent about six months building that product, and then uh, you know, this is a very complicated product. So it involves 3D avatars and microcurrencies and user-generated content and all the social technologies, blogs and photo uploads and streams and the whole nine yards. So those of you who are engineers in the room who think like I do will say, wait a minute, something doesn't seem right. How could you go from zero to that whole product in six months? And the answer is something had to give. And so I'll just, I'll be honest, I can, I can say this now, this product sucked. Uh, it would be more likely to crash your computer than it would be to you know, give you a delightful 3D avatar experience. So I was a little bit nervous about it. My, my job was chief technology officer of this company. I built this technology with, with my bare hands. And I had plenty of mentors who were like, I, you can't do that. You, know, you can't put a product like that out there. You really ruin your reputation. And my co-founders and I were quite nervous that we would ruin the brand equity of InView, that we would you know, make a lot of customers angry. I had this image in my mind that some journalist would uh, discover our first version on launch day, and they would write an article. I saw this like, big headline, idiots at IMVU don't know what quality means. You know, my mugshot is right there in the article, story at five, and that's the end of my career. But we didn't want to build something that nobody wanted. We wanted to get some feedback. We put it out there. And so we launched the product, and it turned out that nobody would even try it. And so at least nobody found out how bad it was. So I was actually relieved at first that they, people wouldn't download it. I said, phew, well, I dodged a bullet. Then I was like, wait a minute. Something here is not right. Why did I just spend six months of my life? And we built it all lean, all agile, you know, very well documented code, if I do say so myself, unit testing, refactoring, the whole nine yards, and nobody would even try it. And to make the long and what I find very depressing story short, we eventually had to pivot the business away from the instant messaging add-on, which customers absolutely hated, and towards a standalone instant messaging network. That business strategy I told you before about the network effects and the switching costs, it looks really good at the whiteboard, and it's really an excellent strategy except for one tiny thing, which is that everything I said was wrong. It's incorrect. Empirically speaking, customers did not want to do that behavior. They found the instant messaging add-on uh, fatally confusing. So, you know, we made the pivot, which is like sounds nice and clean and sterile, but actually what that means is my code 
My beautiful, beautiful code that I wrote with my bare hands all had to be thrown away. And so I was sad. Why was I sad? Because I was saying like, why did I have to be here for these six months? If all my work got thrown away, if it all turned into waste, could my co-founders have done all the hard work and I could have been on vacation somewhere and just join them now when we're starting back over at zero? And you know, we all know, especially those of us who've been managers in companies will know that when you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel for last ditch excuses to excuse your failure, there's like one, the very last one you can resort to is you can be like, wait, hold on, hold on. If we hadn't done this, if we hadn't shipped this product, we certainly would never have learned this important thing about customers. So learning is the excuse you use to justify failure, which is why most managers are not utter that word out loud, because they know that a manager who learns something is probably a manager who's about to be fired. Why? Because they either didn't make a very good plan, or worse, they failed to execute a good plan. So that's not good. And yet for entrepreneurs, my contention is that learning is our most valuable asset. So that made myself feel better. I said, well, look, entrepreneurship is about learning. We learned this thing. That's good. I felt good. And I actually was woken up in the middle of the night with this thought that put me right back to sad, which was, wait a minute. If my goal the last six months was to learn this important thing about customers, why did it take six months? How come the word learning is only coming up now at the end as an excuse? What did my co-founders and I talk about during those six months? You know, we didn't talk about learning. We talked about what features do we absolutely possibly have to have in version one? And which ones could we possibly skip? Sound familiar to anybody? Which bugs did we absolutely positively have to fix and which ones could we leave in there? And yet customers wouldn't even download our product, which means they wouldn't even find out how bad our design decisions were. So why did we spend all that time and energy wasting you know, wasting our time talking about that stuff. I asked myself, did we really need to support 10 different instant messaging networks in version one to get the learning? Like, would the learning have been the same if we only had five networks, or three, or one? Well, yeah, because customers didn't want to interoperate with any network, so what did it matter? But that's like an order of magnitude decrease in the amount of work I would have had to do. And then I had this thought, which is like, hold on. What if we just created a single web page? We did a one-day experiment. The web page is a screenshot of the product we propose to build and a big download button. Would we even have had to create page two where we apologize that there's no product available? <laughs> no, because what did I say before? I said that customers wouldn't download the product. That means they literally would not have clicked the download button even if it was there. So what did it matter what was on page two or 10 or in the 12th hour of the experience? All the stuff we were talking about was all actually a waste of time. That's what I mean by validated learning. Instead of viewing our job as product development, as a startup, as looking at a product and saying, hey, how do we achieve this specification with minimum effort? Well, we have to change our minds to think, how do we achieve this learning with minimum effort? And that's where the big savings uh, in entrepreneurship come. When we realize that most of the work we're doing, even if it seems like a good idea at the time, is in fact a form of waste. That's why we are busy wasting people's time. And if you believe that, then the next step is to focus on what we would call the fundamental cycle time of a startup, which is this. All we are, and I've written this for software because that's my background, as a software company, is a catalyst that transforms ideas into code. When customers interact with that product, we can measure their reaction, which produces data, which can help us learn, influencing our next set of ideas. So it's a very simple three-stage feedback loop. And our goal as entrepreneurs, when we think about the process, infrastructure, architecture, everything that we do should be geared towards minimizing the total time between when we have an idea and when we have validated whether that idea is brilliant or more likely crazy. And there's a lot of specific techniques that I think can help us do that. Uh, and I've listed a bunch here. You can learn more about every single one of these online. They are somewhat controversial. 
You know, take, for example, continuous deployment, which InView uh, is you know, famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, for doing. That means we take software and we put it into production as much as 50 times a day on average. So just for the engineers in the room, between what the time in which code is written and checked into the trunk, there are no branches, and the time when it is running in production is at most 15 minutes. And we do that day in, day out, without taking the site down, without regressing old bugs, because we have a discipline methodology of iterating that quickly. Now, the point of continuous deployment is not to just be sloppy and throw stuff out there and see what happens. It is rather a system for evaluating whether ideas are any good or not, because we all know there are lots and lots of features that we want to build that take longer to prioritize than they do to actually implement. So instead of arguing about them, we can rather put them into production, run an experiment, test, and see if they're any good instead. What is challenging about practices like continuous deployment is not that they are technically hard to implement. It's just that in the dominant paradigm that focuses on Taylor-style efficiency, we can't really think of why. Because we're not yet geared to think of startups as learning organizations. Does that make sense? All right. At least a few people not. I think that's a good sign. So let's talk about accounting, because I know you, you wouldn't want to leave here without talking about the world's most boring topic, <laughs> accounting. This, this was inspired by a diagram I saw in a great book called The Toyota Way about lean manufacturing. And uh, I don't know how many people can see this, but it basically says that most of the time we're talking about manufacturing and lean, and certainly most of our conversation today so far has focused on the process layer. And what we forget is that the specific processes for which Toyota is famous are first enabled by the foundation of their philosophy of long-term thinking. And this got me thinking too, well, what is the equivalent of the startup way for us? And so I drew this diagram. I believe that the process layer is, again, not the root. If we want to get good at adopting these processes, we have to focus on the way we hold entrepreneurs accountable. See, a lot of, most startups, I would say, are being held accountable to what I call vanity metrics. And vanity metrics are the numbers you put in your press release to make your competitors feel bad about themselves. Right? So it's like the biggest number you can come up with, the millions of hits on our page or the zillions of messages that have been sent on our platform. And we love to give those numbers out to the press because we know they sound good, but they don't actually reveal anything important about our business, which is like a professional way of saying that we're lying. Uh, and so that's, you know, for some reason, that's the accepted practice. You'll have to ask our colleagues in the journalism school why that's allowed. But in any event, when we as entrepreneurs believe the vanity metrics as if they told us something real, we get into real trouble. Because of course, when the numbers go up, it's due to whatever I was working on at the time, naturally. But when the numbers go down, it's the fault of those idiots in marketing down the hall. And so all of us start to live in our own private reality where the things that we do make the numbers go up and everything else gets in the way. That's why seasonal effects always make numbers go down, never up. You ever notice that? It's very strange. So you know, that leads to some bad outcomes when we start to bring in stakeholders. You know, if, if we're just by ourselves as entrepreneurs, we can get away with a lot of nonsense. But of course, pretty soon we're going to have stakeholders because we need resources. And the stakeholder conversation generally goes like this. Um, if you're an internal entrepreneur in a big company, you go to your CFO. Or if you're an entrepreneur pitching a VC, or you're a garage entrepreneur and you're pitching your spouse, you might say, dear spouse, dear. Um, if you just give me one year and this team of five, and our whole life savings, I promise you, we're going to have the most amazing results one year from now. We're going to have millions of customers and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. We'll be on the covers of magazines. We'll change the world. It'll be great. And the spouse or the CFO or the VC says, great, here's a check. Go do it. And now let's time lapse forward one year. What do we know for sure? We know for sure that the money got spent. 
Oh, money always gets spent somehow right on schedule. We know for sure that everybody was kept busy, but that's all we know for sure. Most likely, instead of millions of dollars in revenue, we have hundreds. Instead of zillions of customers, maybe we only have a few thousand, and things are not looking too good. And that negotiation always goes as follows. Um, dear, or CFO, I know I said uh, that we would have all these customers, and we didn't achieve any of those business results, but we have learned so much. <laughs> If you just give me one more year and five million dollars this time, you know, a team of 25, this we are on the brink of success. And we all we laugh because we know that is the moment where most startups get shut down. That's where managers get fired and people's marriages can be in trouble. Because we like to make fun of the people whose job it is to hold entrepreneurs accountable because they're always pulling the plug on startups too soon. They're the conservative CFO, vulture capitalists, who are, you know. But look at it from their point of view. A year has gone, the money's been spent, and they can't tell based on their accounting paradigm whether you are, in fact, on the brink of success or, rather, have spent that year goofing off. Either way, you have almost no customers, just like you do. So we're not talking about A-plus versus A-minus. We're saying the current accounting paradigm cannot tell the difference between an A-plus and an abject F. And so that's really total paradigm breakdown, right? What we need is a new accounting paradigm, specifically for startups. I call it innovation accounting, not to be confused with innovative accounting, which can get you thrown in prison. So do, <laughs> do be careful. This is for startups, not for public companies. And the idea here is that if you have a, if you have a, a business plan with a spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet says you know, you'll make a certain amount of money over time based on certain inputs, and I go with my magnifying glass and do Appendix B of your business plan, you know what I'm talking about. And I look at the three-point font, I look in a little box, and it will say 10%. And if I trace my finger to the left and I hold my magnifying glass, I will say, what is this 10%? It will say, percentage of customers who sign up for free trial. Now, my contention is that is not something that should be in three-point font in Appendix B. It is rather a leap of faith assumption without which your entire business would fall apart. The reason I know that is think about what happens to your beautiful spreadsheet if I change that 10 to a zero. Every other cell magically becomes zero because as I discovered the hard way at MVU, if people won't even try the free trial, it certainly doesn't matter what the you know, lifetime value of a customer is. Everything is effectively zero. So most of the time we know we have that assumption baked into our business plan, but we basically figure we'll just build the product, ship it, and see what happens, which is a recipe for disaster. So instead, what I want us to do is build what we call a minimum viable product, do the least amount of work necessary to find out what that number really is right now. So we might run an experiment with a small number of customers to figure out what percentage of customers would sign up for our free trial. And even if that number comes back depressing, like 0%, like it usually does, that's actually good news, because it's much better to have bad news that's true rather than good news that you just made up. That's what we want to do. So for every one of those assumptions, we'll build a minimum viable product to get the real number. That's establishing the baseline of where we are right now. And then we can figure out where we want to go by trying to tune the engine, by doing that build, measure, learn, the iterative improvements to the product that try to drive that baseline up towards the ideal in our business plan. And then sometimes that will work, and sometimes we'll hit the point of diminishing returns, in which case we'll decide it's time to pivot. Hence the third learning milestone we call pivot or persevere. I'll give you one last specific tip. If you've ever been in a pivot meeting in a real startup, you will know it's generally one of the most depressing experiences you can ever have. Because pivot meetings tend to happen at the 11th hour, when the building is on fire, when meteors are falling from the sky, when like, it's a disaster, it's a crisis. Because we've you know, given up hope and it's really depressing. But since we know, we know that we're going to have to pivot our startup, let's just schedule the meeting in advance. Let's just put it on the calendar for, say, every eight weeks and say, look, we're just going to get together and have a conversation about whether it's time to pivot or not. First of all, it'll be a lot less depressing because it's a routine matter. It doesn't give indications to the employees that we're about to die, which encourages good thinking. 
but also it allows us to work backwards from to say what information would I want to have available to me eight weeks from now in order to make a good decision about whether our business is working or not. Wouldn't that be exciting? And then we can then gear our experiments towards making sure that we have that information in time. Anyway, that is the mechanism by which I hope we will stop wasting people's time. I'm very excited to have some time for questions. I hope we do. Uh, but before that, I just thought I'd leave a few questions that I, I noticed in my talk that I had left unanswered. Uh, like, how do we know specifically when to pivot? What is that relationship between vision and strategy and product? Okay, you believe in innovation accounting, but what specifically should we measure? How do we engineer our products for growth? How do we tell if the work we do every day creates value or is rather waste? What should go in the MVP? And my favorite question, is it possible that even as we scale, we could go faster rather than slower? That is, is bureaucracy and lethargy our inevitable destination as successful companies? Of course, I think the answer is no. I left these questions actually deliberately unanswered because I heard there's this really great book that just came out. <laughs> and I hope that you will all check it out. I thank you very, very much. Here's how to get in touch with me. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so very much. At this point, we have time for uh, questions. There are stewards back here with the microphone. So if you will hold up your hands if you have a question, and then we will have the steward bring the microphone, and we'll take uh, questions up till about 8 o'clock, and then we'll be moving into the foyer for the book signing. So first question uh, on the aisle here. Hi, good evening. Thanks very much. Thank you. Let, let me just say to start with that I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, I've started about eight companies in the course of my career, so you're talking to somebody who's had a certain amount of experience, and I recognize a lot of what you have to say. I think one of the things that astonishes me from what you didn't decide to put on your bullet points is anything about who are the people who are leading this business? Because one of the things I guess I learned <clears throat> number one in the first, in the first failure, mm -hmm. was that you start by getting people who are going to be, you know, leading the development of the right questions. Yeah. And I'm surprised that, you, that, you, that, that the businesses you seem to be talking about don't seem to have any directors. So that's really my question. Oh, is is that true? Is that your experience? It's just because all my businesses are not digital. Uh -huh. So I don't know whether there's something special about your kind of business. Yeah, having the right people and the right kind of people is, is absolutely important. And, and the reason I don't talk about that um, is because I feel like in the field of entrepreneurial advice, uh, we tend to be oversaturated in topics about who the right people are and what the right kind of culture is. And, you know, I just I feel like we have to get serious about the process layer. And here's why. The purpose of these processes is to enable people to do innovative and creative things. You have people who are fundamentally not creative, it's not gonna work. But I feel like we get very, we're very, we very easily judge people as either creative or not, having the, the, the chops or not. And I think that's actually much more a, a, an artifact of the environment that they have been working in rather than some kind of essential attribute of their DNA. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree with that. But my quick question is, what are the directors doing in all this? In all this, because aren't they the ones who are saying? I mean, you know, every business that I've been involved with after the first one uh, is one that's really been focused on 
you know, is there a market? I mean, the, the first question is Amen. what kind of a market is there for what it is that we're trying to do? And that's your customer thing. Yeah. And that's where we always start. And if you haven't got people at the top who are saying, you know, what do we know about the customers? What do we know about the market? Uh, what are we doing? You know, I see. you can yes. close up the shop in the first yes, those, three those, months. Those people mind. are actually in the room right now. We're trying to indoctrinate them into that way of thinking. I mean, that's what that's that. Listen, that, those are the stakes exactly right. And for a company where people have been schooled in the previous management paradigm, you put those people in charge of a startup, uh, it tends to be lethal. So, you know, peace. Yeah, amen. Okay, uh, there's some gentlemen. How should e-commerce businesses think about their minimum viable product? You, you mentioned in your book Zappos and sort of how they took pictures of the shoes and then they actually went and just bought them retail and shipped them, but, but I don't think that's an option for a lot of e-commerce businesses where you sort of need to have the inventory, et cetera, et cetera. So how should, how should e-commerce businesses be thinking about it? I get the it? sense this is a hypothetical question. Not really, but... Uh, <laughs> of course, I, I'm picking on you because entrepreneurs never, ever ask hypothetical questions. Uh, and, and of course, I can't answer your question the way you'd like without knowing what kind of product we're talking about. But, but I, I will point out that uh, inventory, the, the reason companies carry inventory is so that they'll have enough of the product to satisfy demand. I mean, I don't mean to be pedantic, but like, let's remember that. So first of all, if there's no demand, there's no inventory. Right, so that's very helpful. You might find that no one wants your product at all, in which case, you don't need to have inventory. So building up inventory in advance of making a sale is always a mistake. Um, now the question is, how much inventory should you have? Assuming that there is some demand. So I'm assuming that you've done at least some experimentation to assess that somebody at least wants your product. The answer is no more inventory than you know, the number of early adopters you plan to serve at the beginning. And I would say there's no penalty. I can think of almost no reason in e-commerce business not to start with a very small number of early adopters, like 10 people. Because look, before you can have a million customers, you've got to have 1,000. And before you can have 1,000, you need 100. And before you need 100, you need 10. And you should be so lucky that you make, put the product available for sale, and 20 people try to buy it when you only have 10 in stock. I mean, then you will have to tell 10 people the product is out of stock. That's actually not so bad. Because first of all, you can go back to them and give them the product later. You can apologize that it wasn't available. And the nice thing about apologizing is it mitigates the cost of failure. So you know, I would say for e-commerce, it's especially easy to put yourself in a position where you are trying to service demand. I would say you may as well take pre-orders even in advance of having any product at all. Just even if you're completely right and there's incredible demand out there, just to double check. What could it hurt to double check? I hope, hope that's helpful. Okay, gentlemen over here. Hi, I, I really like your story. You start with the kind of crisis in management and, and, and blend in the lean, and it's got all the right buzzwords for a business school. Thank you, I think. Uh, it's great. <laughs> and, and, you, and you're a failure as well. So tell me, why should I listen to this? Because what I don't have, and perhaps you could just outline a couple of examples where you've actually used this theory in practice and, and built something that is successful, which is you know, what we're all trying to do. Yeah, you shouldn't listen to me. I mean, seriously, uh, no entrepreneur actually, as far as I can tell, actually does what the people they go to see speak tell them to do, which is actually one of entrepreneurs' most endearing qualities. I mean, certainly when I was an entrepreneur, the last thing I would do is go to a talk like this, write down the instructions, and then go implement them. I mean, that's, even if we weren't all a bunch of contrarians, uh, that would be a terrible idea. So, so I can tell you stories of companies that have done some of these things and have been successful. And in fact, in the book, it's full of case studies because, of course, argument by case study is one of our most powerful persuasive techniques rhetorically. 
But I'm not going to answer your question right now. I'm not going to do that. I mean, I've stipulated that InView is a successful company, but you don't. You have no reason to believe me. You don't know. I could be lying to you. I mean, we could be doing success theater, which is what you do as an entrepreneur to make yourself look successful. There's plenty of that. So, so doing something that somebody else did because they were successful, I think, is the biggest logical fallacy ever. How do you know that that thing actually made them be successful? How do you know that what worked for them will work for you? How do you know that what worked in the past will work in the future? I mean, it's ridiculous. Instead, the whole point of having a scientific framework is that this framework makes predictions about what will happen if you try little bits of it. And the nice thing about the truth is that every part is similar to every other part. So you don't have to adopt the whole thing wholesale. You can start with one concept and see what happens. So what I hope you'll do is rather than listen to me, think for yourself. Use the scientific method to discover which elements of this work, and more importantly, which ones don't work, and then tell the rest of us so that we can all get smarter. So I hope you'll do that. OK. Uh, right behind, about two rows there. Hi, uh, thank you very much for the talk. I thank really you. enjoyed it. Uh, I have a question reg regarding uh, how do you deal with, what's your advice on dealing with uh, competition or potential competitors when you put up an MVP you know, on the web and it, you know, it's very easy for everyone to see it and sort of see if you're getting traction. You know, they could look at Alexa or whatever and sort of see if you know, you're getting visits. So how do you deal with that? And how do you convince your team that it's OK to put an MVP there, even if it's not ready? And even if you don't have the capability to scale it up? Another hypothetical question. <laughs> I, what, what I hope that someone will say to your team, uh, or to a team who has this, has this question, uh, I, I hope we will, we will try this experiment which I have found to be a surefire, 100% effective cure for fears about competition, which is as follows. You take one of your ideas. Every entrepreneur has a lot of good ideas. So don't take your best, most brilliant idea, but pick something from the list that you think is pretty good and try to get a competitor to steal it. I mean, write them a memo. Send them an email. <laughs> write out a business plan, draft it, and put it. Go find the relevant product manager at the relevant company whose job should be to do that thing right now and try to get them to steal your idea. We should be so lucky that companies would steal good ideas. I mean, I wish every big company who I'm their customer would steal more good ideas. The issue that makes startups, that allows startups to kill big companies is the thing Clay Christensen calls the innovator's dilemma, which is that big companies have plenty of ideas. The problem is they can't implement new ideas because they're captive to the demands of the things that they've done in the past. So I would say totally ignore your, your competition. Don't worry about it. If you can't out-iterate them, you're toast anyway. So the pathetic, like, tiny little head start you get from the time you spend in stealth mode is going to be crushed by faster iteration if you're not the fastest. And plus, you're the startup, so shame on you if you're being out-iterated. Okay. Down here. Hi, Eric. Um, I work in a startup, and we release new, re new versions of our product every two weeks and kind of agile. And even in that, I see stuff, stuff gets released that it, ultimately people don't really want. And it's, even though that is a small period of time, it's wasted. Mm -hmm. So how would... I try and convince people to do more continuous deployment because we don't do that. We just release every two mm -hmm. weeks. Do you do continuous integration? Um, I'm not sure. Okay, um, that's all right. I'm just trying to assess assess where you are on the buzzword chart. You just have okay. to <laughs> satisfy the other guy. Um, I love buzzwords. What can I say? Uh, we need names for concepts, otherwise we can't communicate. I want to talk to you about something called batch size. This is going to sound like it has nothing to do with your question, but it does. Uh, 
Let's imagine that I had the following task that I needed to do. And is uh, anyone ever have to do this? I guess it's not as common anymore. You have 100 newsletters that have to be mailed out. And so you've got 100 letters that have to be folded, stuffed in envelopes. Each envelope has to be sealed, stamped, addressed, and stuck in a mailbox. Sound familiar to anybody? If you ask even the youngest child what the fastest way to get this job done, and if you'd asked Fred Taylor, he would have said the exact same thing. It's the most intuitive answer on the planet, which is first, you fold all 100 letters. Then you stuff all 100 envelopes, then you seal all 100 envelopes, then you stamp all 100, then you address all 100. You take a batch of 100 letters and put it in the mailbox. Doesn't that seem very intuitive? It just so happens to be a fact, an empirical fact, that if you do this, what they call single piece flow in manufacturing terms, which simply means you do it one at a time. You take one piece of paper, fold it, stick it in an envelope, seal it, stamp it, address it, stick it in the mailbox, that that is actually faster than doing it with batch size 100. Now, nobody believes this the first time they hear it. Uh, in fact, it's, people are so skeptical that I actually went for the book, I had to go find online a video where some blogger had actually videotaped himself stuffing <laughs> envelopes both ways with a stopwatch. And I kid you not, another blogger who was also obsessed with this topic, thank God for bloggers and their OCD, <laughs> broke it down frame by frame by frame to figure out where did the time go because it just doesn't make sense. And it turns out the answer is that when you do things in batch size 100, you spend a ton of time managing inventory. Right? So you're moving, you watch him, he's actually moving all these piles of things around. Whereas, uh, and he spends a lot of time picking things up and putting them down. Whereas you do it in single piece flow, you pick it up once, transform, 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 and you put it down. Now, it's pretty cool. You've got to watch the video if you don't believe it. <laughs> in manufacturing, what they discovered is that for a very counterintuitive reasons, working in smaller batches is actually more efficient and leads to higher quality outcomes uh, than working in larger batches. So I'm coming around to your question in just a second, see where I'm headed. Let's imagine that the two perspective, two versions, two, two ways of working were exactly the same in terms of you know, time efficiency. Even then, you'd be better off in single piece flow if you live in a world where sometimes things go wrong. Like for example, what would happen if the envelopes are defective and they won't seal? When do you want to find that out? Do you want to find that out after you've stuffed all 100 of them? And now you have to unstuff and restuff? What happens if the letters don't fit in the envelope? So the stamps are the wrong amount or the address? Or what if the customer doesn't want the newsletter? How soon do you want to find that out? See, now we get to your question. When we work in product development, whatever we're doing, if we impose an arbitrary two-week time lag between when we make a mistake and when we find out we made the mistake, we've automatically guaranteed that the person who made the mistake will not remember what they were thinking at the time that they made the mistake. In fact, I am repeatedly uh, shown documentary evidence of mistakes I've made in the past, and I'm always like, somebody else did that. <laughs> Definitely not. Meek, I don't remember writing that horrible, especially now that I know it's a mistake. Like instantly, instant amnesia, it's amazing. So uh, in continuous deployment, what happens is I ship something, I make a mistake, I find out right away. And in fact, we do something we call the cluster immune system, where for catastrophic mistakes, the system is smart enough to revert them automatically. It's absolutely impossible to do that with a two-week iteration. To me, two weeks is not agile, two weeks is not fast, two weeks is an eternity. You're gonna write hundreds and hundreds of you know, different features and bug fixes and API refactoring, all kinds of stuff is all gonna get packaged up into one ginormous batch and you're gonna ship it all at once. Now what happens if something goes wrong? You don't have a two-week cycle because what happens is when something goes wrong, now you've got to spend time debugging. Well, which of the 3,000 things that we just shipped caused the problem? Now, you know, our two-week development and one-day deploy now becomes a day of firefighting or three days of firefighting. I've seen teams where the firefighting takes up half the next iteration. Not your team, of course, but other teams. When you work in large batches, you spend an astronomical amount of time firefighting. So 
Because this is counterintuitive, it's really hard to get teams to adopt. I mean, before I understood the language and the logic of batch sizes, I had very poor success getting teams to do it. And it was only because at InView, I was in charge of the engineering team. I could just say, we're doing this. I don't care what anybody says. And if you don't like it, fire me. And it came close for, <laughs> for a couple of times. Because people were like, this doesn't make sense. But once you get the hang of it, it might work. So what you need to do is make the argument for reducing batch size. Help people understand, and you can read books on, on and there's a lot of math involved in figuring out optimal batch size and stuff like that. And then, here's the last most counterintuitive thing about batch size. What will happen if you win this argument with someone and they say, okay, maybe I'm willing to give this a try, they'll say, you know, what we should first do is reduce the overhead of deployment and then reduce the batch size. Because imagine it takes you one day to do your deployments. I'm just guessing from the fact that you do a two-day iteration, a two-week iteration. Probably takes one day to do a deployment. If I do a deployment every day, so the logic goes, I'd spend my whole day in overhead. I never get anything done. Therefore, we can't have a one-day deployment cycle before we reduce deployment overhead. That's another one of these weird, counterintuitive things that's exactly backwards. The right way to make this kind of process transformation is to change the batch size first. And what happens, you will not believe this, is the deployment overhead magically shrinks. Because after you've spent one day, your whole one day cycle spending on deployment, your engineers are finally like, you know, we got to fix this. Let's just fix it. And all of a sudden, your deployment will take one hour. And then you can be like, great, we're going to do one deployment an hour. And then, oh, geez, I've got to fix this. And that will be one deployment. And then eventually, you'll get it down to what is, in fact, the minimum size. So that is the way to do the transition. But yeah, you're going to have to, you have to make that case to people who are going to find it quite counterintuitive. That's because that's you're dealing with human beings. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, right there in the blue shirt. Hi, um, question about investment, and, and more importantly, obviously, the philosophy argues the case that it's much more effective for investment, but it's more about how you approach investors. Are you still better off going with the, I've got this amazing idea that's going to make you millions, yeah. or I've got these ideas that I'm going to test quickly? You know, what, have you got any experience or sort of seen uh, sort of evidence of, of how, how to sell it in, I suppose? Oh, this is not easy to sell to investors. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Um, we raised uh, venture capital for InView uh, in 2005. So there was no lean anything. I mean, this is all new since then. Um, and so we were doing a lot of these practices, but we didn't know how to talk about them. And, and we had um, iterated our way from the like, product that didn't work through a pivot to something that did work. And we had this beautiful graph. It had the perfect hockey stick shape. And it went from something like $300 a month you know, in the low part, the long, flat part, the most important part of the shape, the long, flat part all the way up to like $8,000 a month in revenue or something like that. And we would go into VCs uh, and we would be like, we'd like to raise $10 million you know, for this, this thing, our Series A. And they'd be like, this is great, really exciting. What are the units on this graph? Is this in thousands? And we're like, uh, no, sir, uh, it is in ones. <laughs> and it was pretty embarrassing, okay? That's <laughs> not. Do not try this at home. We got kicked out of a lot of VC offices who were like, are you kidding me? You think you're so stupid. I'm going to give you $10 million. Come back when you have millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, and of course, we didn't raise money for those people. But a few of our investors understood what we were really saying. Because at that time, we had only a few thousand customers. We were making more than a dollar per customer per month. And they could do some pretty interesting math. They're like, wait a minute, dollar per customer per month? What if these guys had 100 million customers, like you know, the big social networks did at that time? they'd be insanely profitable, very excited. So they understood that we had conducted a micro-scale experiment that made predictions about what would happen in the future. And the second thing they understood was that we could tell them a very accurate story about what had caused the changes that caused that inflection point. 
right? And it wasn't just after the fact rationalization, because we had done split testing and cohort analysis, for those who knows what these things are, allowed us to make real scientific uh, conclusions about what had happened. So we came in with a story that said, listen, we may not have the biggest vanity metrics, but we have the fastest rate of learning about what these customers want. And if there's a business here to be found, we're the team to back, because we'll find it. And you know, at that time, only a very few of Silicon Valley investors like, really understood what we, were, what we were talking about. Now, you know, I like to think there were more, but this is definitely a tough, a tough sell. So be, be forewarned. Don't go in. Here's one thing not to do. Please, I beg you. Do not go into a VC's office and start being like, oh, we're so lean, minimum viable product, buzzword this, buzzword that. VCs hate that, and they complain to me about it all the time. They're like, some, yet another person came into my office with the same old crappy pitch, but now it's got a quote from Eric Ries on the cover, so it's lean. I'm just like, God, don't pitch the buzzwords, pitch the results. Otherwise, just give up and go home. So please don't do that. Okay, right next there is blue. Yeah. Hi, my name is Pedro from uh, representing Motion for Startups. We basically create um, short videos for startups so they can explain the products and ideas. Cool. And I was wondering if you think that talking about the minimum viable product, sometimes don't you feel that maybe a startup find it difficult to explain to the core customer? You know, I mean, I recently I came across with one that he was trying to spread the menu, the menu for the day, you know, which is like a popular in Spain. You know, you can have the menu for the day. And then when I went to visit the, the website, you know, nothing was clear. I was getting Cambridge when I was looking for Seville. And so, you know, we're trying to help company precisely for that, for the startup to communicate. But do you think that communication probably sometimes the problem that, you know, you make a startup, you got a product, and suddenly when you're trying to tell people, you know, this is it, this is what we got they may find it noisy to, try, you know, to communicate that in a proper way? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, there's such a thing as a bad experiment. I mean, if, if the product has no functionality, that if it doesn't actually work for the target customer at all, then the fact that they don't like it gives you no information. But that excuse is used far too often to prevent people from releasing the MVP at all. So like, the truth is you've got to figure out what is the experiment I need to run? What, can I, what will actually give me information? And generally, when we shrink an MVP, we don't want to shrink it by making it not functional. We want to shrink it down so that it serves only a smaller number of customers than the overall vision. Right? So a lot of times we want to serve technology early adopters who are very tolerant of, say, a bad design and don't ma matter the thing is really ugly. But in another business, we might say, you know, no, it needs to look really good, but the back-end infrastructure, like in the Zappos case, doesn't have to be real, doesn't have to be automated. We can fake that out. So it's a matter of judgment figuring out, well, how do we get it down to the point where it's small enough that we can run the test? But here's the other thing. The thing that I think startups don't understand is that there's no penalty, zero penalty, for shipping your MVP too early. I mean, the worst thing that can happen, the absolute worst thing, is customers look at the MVP and they tell you, this is garbage. And you're like, why don't you like it? And they tell you exactly what you thought. And you're right about what they care about. Like, how, that's not so bad. You just apologize to the few people who said that to you. Be like, we're going to come back and listen to you and produce something that you like better. We're going to do the stuff that was on your roadmap already. And then they're going to think they're geniuses. And be like, wow, we, these guys listen. How fun. That's great. It's actually a really good outcome. If you ship too early, though, other things can happen. Like, for example, they might like it minimal, more than the thing you were planning to build. Right? We all know today that Google, the Google founders, are geniuses. They knew that the whole portal thing was too complicated and confusing, and they you know, had this design insight to simplify down to just the search box. But the great thing about the internet is the Wayback Machine. Everyone know the Wayback Machine? You can go back in time and read the About Us page of any startup you want for version one. If you read Google's About Us page, it practically reads like, 
listen, uh, we're really sorry. We're going to totally get to all that portal stuff soon, but we just only kind of have the box right now, but we're going to like, you know, they're just like putting it out there to see what happened. They didn't know. They weren't. To, but then the customers loved it, like retroactively became geniuses. That could be you. <laughs> if you do the MVP and it works. So point, I think it's definitely worth releasing something that even if you're not sure, because you can always release it again and again and again. Just don't launch it in the press, right? Keep it small, and then you have the freedom to do anything you want. Uh, right there. Hi, Rick. Uh, in your book, you've also talked about you know, entrepreneurs within a large corporate environment, and you know, you've used the term entrepreneurs in there. And you know, I work for a sort of a large enterprise, and trying to talk about min minimum viable product and innovation accounting is, is sort of difficult because you are an established brand, you can't afford to you know, launch a product and apologizing to thousands or millions of people. And you have been consulting and advising to corporates as well. So in your experience advising to them, what sort of challenges or let me say one of the biggest challenges the established corporates find in adopting your methods? Is it around MVP, accounting, or what is that? Oh, sure. I mean, all the point of publishing a book and having it be a bestseller and using the language of management accounting is so I hope these companies will, will change their ways. Because if they don't, they'll die. And you know, listen, as, as a person who lives in San Francisco, I don't really care if they live or die. I mean, it's not, not, nothing to me. Like, if a startup eats their lunch and then adopts these practices and beats them, you know, that makes me a terrible consultant. I go to these companies, I'm like, hi, I don't actually care if you live or die. But if you want to live, you know, here's the way. It's not, it's not good consulting practice. Don't try that uh, if you ever tried it. Um, so the challenge is convincing senior management to change the way that they hold people accountable. Right, so like just what you said about minimum viable product, exactly. First, you say you do minimum viable product, the first thing people are going to say is, oh my god, the corporate brand, we have to protect it. And so you have to already be prepared to say, first of all, okay, let's just not launch it under the corporate brand. You don't have to tell people it comes from the corporate brand. You could just release it and not tell anybody where it comes from. You could create a subsidiary with an alternate brand. There's a million ways you could keep it small. And big companies that stamp the corporate brand in every new initiative kill all their internal startups because actually, the whole premise of, the, of this concept is that the corporate brand is something valuable to be protected. But most, most customers hate the corporate brand, think it stands for crap. I mean, I'm just not, not your company, but your competitors. That's what they think. <laughs> and so, like stamping the corporate brand on something new, I mean, nobody, very few customers believe that the vendors they buy products from are, are innovative. So you stamp that corporate brand on something, you immediately alienate the kind of customers you want to reach. So it's, it's reversing that kind of thinking that has to come from the top down because the middle managers, uh, middle managers right now are being paid to prevent innovation. That's their job. Because innovation to them means a crazy person walks in their office and like, I know, let's completely disrupt and destroy our whole business model so that we won't make the quarter. And managers get paid to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep doing what we did before, and we're going to make the quarter. That's their job. That's what they get paid to do. So if we want to have innovation be successful in a corporate context, we have to recognize that it requires a different kind of management. and needs different structures. I would like most big companies to adopt as a, as a job title, as a thing it can say on your business card, entrepreneur. It already says, listen, you're not in a department. You're not an engineer. You're not a marketer. You're not a business analyst. You are an entrepreneur. That's your job is to come up with new innovative things for the company. Now, we've got to go convince all senior management to do that. It's, it's going to be a challenge. Okay. Uh, up there in the middle-ish, third row-ish down. Hi. Uh, thanks for the talk. Um, you're quite good with uh, answering questions. It's like you've done that before. <laughs> a few times. Um, Thank you. So after you, all this disproportionate attention dies down, <laughs> what are you going to do next? Oh, thank you for that question. Um, 
I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, look, I never thought I would be doing this, okay? If you'd asked me any time in the past, would, th would this be what I would be doing now, I would have been like, come on, that's ridiculous. Listen, I was a software programmer, okay? That's what I grew up doing. That's what, that's what I know. So, so I don't, I mean, already things have changed for me so much, it's hard for me to predict what's in the future. I do look forward to having some time actually at home. That, to me, would be the ultimate vacation at this point. Um, there's a couple things that, you know, that I have been kicking around, and, and I actually made a few suggestions in the very last chapter of the book uh, for things that I think need to happen if we're really going to be serious about making this change. Um, and I'll, just, I'll share one of them with you because in case the stuff I said already wasn't controversial enough to make you think I was crazy, I'm hoping this will push you over the edge. Uh, I think that a lot of the problems that we have stem from problems in our public markets and their relentless short-term focus. So both for corporates, but also, remember, when we exit, big companies buy our startups. So the destiny of most new products is to be owned by one of these public companies that is being held accountable to ridiculous short-term targets that mean nothing. I mean, I saw this article recently, I think it was on TechCrunch, about Apple stock. You know, Steve Jobs died, and the stock was basically flat. And then uh, Apple missed its these ridiculous analyst uh, projections for their quarter. They had the second best quarter in their history, but it wasn't good enough for the analysts, and the stock went down 5%. I was like, really missing the quarter is worse than Steve Jobs dying? Come on, that's ridiculous. So we're putting this pressure on companies to hit these ridiculous targets, and therefore starving them for their ability to invest in innovation for the long term. So my proposal is um, we should create what I call the long-term stock exchange which is a competitor to our existing public markets. It's an alternate place where, pub where companies can go public and where the rules for investors and management are different. Management compensation has to be tied to long-term performance only, uh, and management has to be willing to pay a transaction fee that would dis uh, discourage frequent trading. So a new, new way for kind of long-term investors and long-term companies to come together uh, to trade. Now, that's probably a terrible idea. And no one can even answer my question of, legally speaking, what is required to start a new stock exchange. So. Anyways, I think we have to start thinking in that direction because this is going to require full-on ecosystem reform because we're talking about the ch a change in the management paradigm of how companies are run. And we're not currently providing a supportive environment for our companies. When companies go public, that's the beginning of a slow death. And so the beast needs a constant supply of fresh meat. That's you. But we're choosing to send our promising companies to these ridiculous public companies. We, have a, we, could, we could, if we chose, send them something somewhere more supportive instead. So I hope that sounds a little crazy. Now we're talking. Anyone wants to work on it, just drop me an email. OK, at least one more question here. There is someone down here in blue. Hi, Eric. Thanks a lot for, for that. It's really interesting. Um, I had a question. One of the things, one of the debates we've had recently in our startup is uh, the, the right time or when to go for big marketing activities. Um, sorry, for big, big marketing activities or, uh -huh. or, or press launch. And I was just wondering from a lean startup perspective, wh when, it, when is that time or does it fit in and are there any signs that you can look for that would indicate it's, it's a good time to go? Yes. Um, I already know in, in your case because you're asking that it's not now. So don't, don't do it now. Do it much later than you think. Entrepreneurs are always very excited to get big fast and to launch, and it's such a temptation, and it's almost always a mistake. The, the companies that have actually done launches successfully almost always launched after they achieved product market fit. They're launching based on the amazing results they've already achieved, rather than launching in order to achieve results. That's really the time. Now, product market fit's one of those really irritating concepts. Talk about really annoying buzzwords, going back to this, really annoying. Because product market fit is something where you know it when you see it. 
So whenever someone calls me and says, hey, I'm trying to figure out if I have product market fit, I'd be like, you don't tell me anything more? I know that you don't have it. Because if you did, you wouldn't be calling me. You'd be too busy trying to keep the servers up or you know, just cashing the checks or coming in too fast. I think I mentioned in the book, Lotus123, founded by, by a mentor by name Mitch Kapoor, they did $54 million of Lotus123 in their first year of existence. They went public the next year. Okay, that's product market fit. They, never had, they were never asking themselves, like, I wonder if this thing is going to work out. Like, they were just trying and desperately to make it work, fulfill a customer demand. Now, the problem with that is, since you know it when you see it, if you don't have it, what do you do? How, do you, how can you tell if you're getting closer to product market fit? And there's really not a short way to answer this question. In the book, I made you know, another one of these, what I think are pretty controversial suggestions, that we can quantify product market fit and use innovation accounting to tell empirically whether we're getting closer or not. And so I would say that the time to launch in the press is when you are either very close to product market fit or actually over that threshold, and you can launch bragging about the amazing results you've had. Okay, final last one. All right, really make it count, it has to be good. Hi, I'm Bobby. I run a startup in a university. Uh, just wondering, uh, you mentioned just now on putting an MVP, just a page, you click download and then go next page. Uh, why do you put a page up and then nobody clicks download? And then at what stage do you blame it? Nobody clicks download because it's marketing's fault for not marketing that page properly. Yeah, there is no marketing. Okay, the distinction between product and marketing in an early stage company is a non-existent distinction. So it's everybody's fault if it's not working. I know, I know that doesn't seem right. But it is. Departments and this kind of siloed mentality of different functional responsibilities is an artifact of big company general management thinking that we have to abolish. Um, the product is the marketing is the product. That's, that's what it is. So if, if customers won't click the download, now it's our collective responsibility to figure out why. It might be because no one got to the page. But that's not marketing's responsibility. All of us need to understand, well, OK, if, if we had the product, how are people supposed to find out about it? And bragging about it in the press doesn't count, right? One-time unsustainable launch activities don't count. Now, there's a lot of, but the thing is, there's a lot of easy ways. We live in the age of the internet, so you can buy attention in small batches. It's one of the great things about our time. So you can take, when we first started marketing InView, I was the VP of marketing, and I had a total advertising budget of $5 a day. That's, you know how bad I am at marketing. I managed to say yes to that budget. But in those days, you could buy clicks on Google AdWords Five cents a click if you were a bottom feeder buying the crappiest keywords, which we were. That meant you got 100 clicks a day. That's 100 human beings coming to our landing page. And I was like, oh, sure, probably like half of them will buy it. And lo and behold, none of them bought it. <laughs> and that was pretty impressive because now the problem isn't that people aren't coming to our page. They're interested, but they're not buying. Okay, why is that? And that allowed us to then dig in, figure out why, figure out how do we change the positioning of the product not the marketing, the positioning of the product in order to make people to buy it. But you can't change the positioning in a startup without changing the product itself because you have to deliver what you promised. It's completely the opposite of how it usually works in traditional companies where marketing, engineering shows up to marketing and be like, here, here's the product, position and sell it as best you can. And if marketing is like, but no one would ever want this, engineering is like, too bad, it's done. We've already been working on it for three years, so good luck. And then, of course, it's marketing's fault if nobody buys it. So none, none of that. It's not appropriate for a startup. So um, I guess with that, um, we're going to do a book signing. I just want to say thank you all very much uh, for being here. And uh, thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you.